I'm Dr. Oren Smith, Senior Fellow at Palmetto Promise Institute in South Carolina, and this is the Beyond Policy Podcast. We hope you'll subscribe to the pod and listen regularly as we think deeply about which policies have the potential to put the well-being of South Carolinians first. Thanks for tuning in to Beyond Policy, and now, on to the show. Well, welcome to this episode of Beyond Policy. I'm your host, Dr. Oren Smith with Palmetto Promise Institute, and our guest today is Dr. C. Bradley Thompson, who is Professor of Political Philosophy at Clemson University and also Executive Director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. Uh, Dr. Uh, Thompson has taught in Ivy League universities. He got his Ph.D. from Brown, somehow survived Brown University, and uh, he has uh, taught at uh, Clemson and also uh, abroad at the University of London. So it's a thrill to have you today, Brad. Oren, thank you very much. I'm delighted to, to be with you in your audience. This is, a, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to. Well, I'm, I'm glad. And it can go so many different directions because you're such a wealth of, of knowledge in all these, uh, these areas. I know, um, you know we're a divided uh, state. We have the garnet part and the orange part. But I, I've got to think that uh, even the garnet folks uh, would be very, very happy to have a similar institute uh, on the campus of the University of South Carolina, which is about uh, 100 yards from where I am sitting. So uh, as a Clemson graduate and a USC uh, graduate, a PhD st- uh, graduate, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat divided. But, you know, your loyalty is always with your undergraduate institution, I think. Yeah. That's I, where I, you get warm. I, I'm sure that's true. But I can tell you, uh, I would love to have a little competition with um, with USC if they were to start their own institute or center for the study of capitalism. Um, there's no reason why we can't have another one at USC. And in fact, let's get them at Furman and Wofford and, and uh, just about every other college uh, in South Carolina. Yes, yes. You know, I, I notice a few other uh, institutions, uh, some of them have popped up. Maybe, did I see Western Carolina or yes. one of the North Carolina? Yes, Western Western Carolina has a uh, a center for the study of capitalism, and there are actually many of them uh, throughout the southeast. So a lot of them are um, connected with uh, a network that we started about uh, sixteen years ago. So the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism was first funded by BB and T, now now Truist Bank. Yes, yes. Yeah, and the the former CEO of BB&T, a great man named John Allison, John uh, provided the initial seed funding for the Clemson Institute, but also for over sixty other uh, college or university ba- based uh, academic programs for the study of capitalism. So there, we we used to run conferences at Clemson. Um, hosting all of these these university programs. So there are several. There's one at Presbyterian College. Um, and actually, there was there was uh, some kind of a program at USC a number of years ago. I don't yeah. know if it exists. Yeah. But there's one still at College of Charleston that I know is thriving. Um, so there are a number still uh, here in South Carolina and certainly um, in the Southeast. Yes. Well, those of those of us in our in our audience that are listening to our voices, they might think, well, you know, this is a study of capitalism or an institute for the study of capitalism, which I think at one point maybe still is the long longer name was 
the uh, the Institute for the Moral Foundations of Capitalism, which is even more wonderful. Um, they they might assume somehow that uh, maybe you're in a broom closet somewhere. That if you were to come to campus and ask where uh, Brad Thompson's office is, they would kind of stare at their shoes. Um, you know that you might be second class citizens. Uh, and I'm almost afraid to ask the question, but I don't think that's the case. I mean, you're you're in the spiffy new College of Business building, aren't you? That's right. We are. And the great thing about Clemson University from the day I arrived in 2005 is that Clemson has been a remarkably uh, welcoming place um, for the what would become the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. So you can well imagine that most universities in the United States probably would not uh, permit the existence of something like the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism, but not 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 at Clemson. So Clemson, from from uh, from the faculty to the administrative staff, right up to the highest levels of the university, have since the day I arrived on campus in in July of two thousand and five, they have never been anything but entirely supportive of, of what we're doing. And, and for that, I'm eternally grateful because it, it just would not happen at most other universities. Wow. That is, that is really great to hear. Um, again, a little trepidation in asking that question, but to, to know that, that you're in the, in the newest building on campus, that you have access to all the resources that um, students can be uh, admitted to Clemson and take part in your programs as a part of their uh, application and their admission to the university. All of that is just just uh, just great to hear. Um, I, I know that um, there are a lot of different programs that you have, and people that uh, have, have heard of the Clemson Institute uh, for the Study of Capitalism, they might have heard, oddly enough, they might have heard first of some of your lectures. These, these uh, lectures, I think, that were named after... Um, John W. Pope. Right. Uh, I think John W. Pope is he was he a, a North Carolinian? He I is. Think? Well, uh, Mr. Pope uh, was a North Carolinian, um, and the John W. Pope Foundation is in Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, his son Art Pope uh, now now runs the foundation. Uh, and yeah, the, the Pope Foundation have been great supporters. Of, uh, of the Clemson Institute in general, but in particular, our signature lecture series um, is the John W. Pope Lecture Series, which we have been running since I think about 2007. And if it's not the biggest, most popular lecture series on campus, it's got to be in the, the top three for sure. And uh, we've been very fortunate over the course of, of these last uh, 15 or 16 years to have some remarkable speakers uh, come to Clemson. Um, you know, we, we've had um, our biggest lecture by far was uh, George F. Will. Yes. Oh, yes. I was hoping you would call that one. Yeah. And I, I think we had about 750 uh, people attend that that lecture. And it was it, it was an extraordinary event. And we've had we've had other people like Jordan Peterson um, come to Clemson and uh, that was a fabulous event, and Andrew Sullivan, and um, just some of the the top speakers in the country. We just had uh, last month uh, the great 
Civil War historian, Ellen Gelzo, uh, come to Clemson. And he gave a fabulous talk on Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's uh, economic views. Yes, yes. And I noticed that's already posted on your uh, website for someone can, anyone who's interested in it can go out on YouTube and watch it. That's right. Just just go to YouTube and, and search for the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism and our page will come up and you can get, go to all of our past uh, lectures. Um, and, you know, we've been doing this lecture series now for about 16 years. And so, I mean, I mean some of America's best known, most beloved and greatest uh, intellectuals um, have come to Clemson and spoken in our lecture series. And and it's it, it really is just I think, to be perfectly frank, I think it's one of the best lecture series in the United States. Um, in, in higher education. And it's something we're very proud of. And your, your listeners can, can uh, you can also just go to our website, just Google Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism will come up and uh, just go to our events and lectures. Um, and you can see all of our past lectures. One, one thing about the Institute that uh, appeals to me, if, if I've got this correct, is um, it seems to be a multidisciplinary institute because your your PhD, I think, is in political science and 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 probably a concentration in political thought. But then, you know, those of us who kind of uh, slice and dice it a little bit more, you've got people that might be political science, but they might be American government, or they might be public administration, or comparative politics, or international relations. And then your Lincoln lecture, I think, was by a historian. And then your office, even though you're a political scientist, is in the College of Business. And a lot of your um, distinguished uh, advisory board members and, and affiliate scholars are economists. So it seems like you've really, you've really covered all the key disciplines there uh, that, that relate to one another in this area. Yeah, so we are a multidisciplinary uh, organization, and I, for your for uh, your audience, I think it's important to make it very clear about who and what the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism is. So when people hear the word capitalism, they just assume that we're that we're about economics, that we're economists, um, and the fact of the matter is that's not that's not true. So uh, the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism might be better named the Clemson Institute for the Study of a Free Society. That really, that probably better. Yeah, society covers everything, economics, history, political science, sociology, philosophy. That's exactly right. And more importantly, the single most important thing, I think, for your audience to understand about the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism is that our primary mission is to explore the moral foundations of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So just again, we're we're not economists. We don't do economics. We're concerned with exploring the moral foundations. And we explore the moral foundations of capitalism from a historical perspective and uh, most importantly, probably from a philosophic perspective. Um, And and Clemson Institute uh, faculty have taught... uh, primarily in the political science department, but also in history and in the English department and in the honors college and, and yes, in the economics department. Yes. Yes. 
Um, I remember back back when I was a student, and I don't know that this has changed that much, but the economics department, I think, was was clearly a free market economics department. I mean, the uh, my, I think it was my freshman year, uh, one of the professors at Clemson, Dr. Bruce Yandel, was named the uh, chair of the of the Federal Trade Commission by uh, then President Ronald Reagan. Uh, Mike Maloney was one of my old professors. Uh, I sure was sorry to see that we lost him uh, last year, but he's been an advisor to us on our energy policy uh, studies. So, but the economics department at Clemson was uh, has always been uh, a, a go-to place for um, for the study of a free market view of, of the economy. Uh, but, but now you have the Clemson Institute who has a slightly different approach, but it seems to be all just dovetailing very nicely there in the new College of Business building. It is. And it's a, it's a gorgeous building. And we have our own suite in the building. And um, if any of your uh, audience members want to come and visit us the next time they're on the campus at Clemson University, they're more than welcome to come in and, and visit with us. That, that sounds great. Um, before I ask you some questions that I am uh, just uh, champing at the bent to ask you about uh, philosophy, I just wanted to cover two quick things about the Institute so that people understand how a potential student or a current student, if I've got this right, how a current student could participate in the programs. Of course, we mentioned the Pope Lecture Series. Any student, any, any, anyone can, can attend those live or, or by uh, YouTube uh, on campus. But also you have a Lyceum uh, program that has sort of two parts, right? One, you could be accepted as a freshman and follow one path. And the other is you just sort of can take a certain number of courses, maybe because we've got some potential, we've got some, some parents out there and some students out there thinking, you know, if I apply to Clemson, I'd like to click the box for the Lyceum programs. I'd like to know sort of the difference between the two. Sure. Happy to talk about it. So without question now, our premier program at the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism is the so-called Lyceum program. And the Lyceum program is an academic program that we started about eight years ago. And it started as a scholarship program. So every year we give 10 to 20 scholarships per year, uh, renewable over four years. And for the so-called Lyceum scholars, those who receive the scholarship, they take our academic program. And our academic program uses a great books approach to studying the history of liberty, capitalism, the American founding, and the principles of moral character. And, and they take eight classes. They take courses uh, such as uh, Wisdom of the Ancients, a course in ancient Greek and Roman moral thought. They do a course on the American founding. They do a course uh, on the political theory of capitalism uh, and a course called Wisdom of the Moderns, the capstone course, which uh, is a hit, is uh, on the, the the moral modern moral thought from Shakespeare to Adam Smith, Jane Austen, Dostoevsky, and the and uh, the American novelist Ayn Rand. So mm, yes, it, it's a unique program unlike at any other academic program in the United States. And then for each one of our Lyceum scholars, they are assigned what we call a Socratic tutor. A Socratic tutor is a faculty member associated with the program who will meet with his or her uh, two T's um, every mm -hmm. other week for approximately an hour. The purpose of- uh, This sounds very British. 
Very, I'm sorry, very English. Yeah, no, it is. It, it, it is. Not um, not so much German. Sounds a little bit more English than yeah. German. Yeah, no, it sounds very much like the tutorial system at Oxford or Cambridge. And so the student um, will meet with his or her uh, professor or Socratic tutor every other week for an hour. And the, the purpose of these conversations is twofold. First, to help these young men and women translate the ideas that they're learning in class. So if they're reading Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, the question is, how does your typical 18-year-old 21st century American translate those ideas into their world here now today? The second purpose of the, life of the Socratic Tutor Program, and the most important purpose, is just to help these young men and women, probably for the first time in their lives, start thinking seriously about the question, broadly speaking, of moral character and their moral character in particular. And there's nothing like it anywhere else uh, in the United States. Now, you also mentioned that we have this parallel program that we call the Lyceum Fellows Program. Uh, and the Lyceum Fellows Program is for Clemson students who want to be a part of the program who did not apply for or receive the Lyceum scholarship. The scholarship. Yeah. So mm -hmm. to get the scholarship, you actually have to apply as a high school senior uh, to get it. Uh, but for Lyceum fellows, once they get to Clemson, they can, they can join the program and the Lyceum fellows um, take six of the eight classes required of the scholars um, and but the virtue is that they have maximum flexibility, unlike the scholars who have to take all their classes lock, stock, and barrel with their coach. Right. Yeah. The fellows just have to take the six classes whenever they want mm -hmm. and in whatever order they want. And uh, they get they get a certificate at graduation in addition to their diploma. Yes, they do. Um, and, and in addition to a certificate, all students in the Lyceum program who are not political science majors get a minor in political science. And the name of the minor is political and legal theory. Hmm. So all yeah. Lyceum students at the very least get this minor in political science. So um, my inquiring mind wonders if uh, when you said legal, I think of my friend who teaches in the business school that's affiliated with a Hayek Institute. Uh, I wonder if there's, is there any connection between the, uh, the Capitalism Institute and the Hayek Institute? Or are they just both the kind of thing that makes us, uh, our heart, our conservative, uh, free market hearts pound? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's no formal connection, um, between the Clemson Institute for the Site of Capitalism and the Hayek Center. Um, but we're, but we, uh, are, we're friendly and we support their work and they support ours and, and, um, and, you know, we're, we're trying to build a, a sort of a larger culture at Clemson, which is appreciative of the free enterprise system. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, the, uh, professor, uh, Watson, uh, has, has worked with us. Uh, and I think he teaches a lot of law courses there in the, in the, in the college. Right. So, um, t taking a turn here to, so a more, little more philosophical turn and a turn that that hopefully will will follow one of the themes of of this podcast and that is how does policy uh and how does how does thought political thought or public policy uh, what impact does it have on real people um recently we released a report that we called um education versus 
indoctrination. And one of the pages in this report, we presented a class, what we called the clash of worldviews. And uh, one one view was a uh, a capitalistic view that that supported equality. And we featured uh, Thomas Sowell, the economist, and and also Tim Scott with some quotes uh, from both Thomas Sowell and U.S. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. But uh, on the on the converse, on the other side in the clash, we had a quotation by uh, Ibram X. Kendi, and uh, he is he is no friend of capitalism. We know that his uh, quote, which uh, a lot of people could. Uh, quote, nearly from uh, memory because it's become so ubiquitous, and that is to love capitalism is to end up loving racism. To love racism is to end up loving capitalism. They were birthed together from the same unnatural causes, and they shall one day die together from unnatural causes. I know you can come at that from a a lot of different directions, but uh, I, I just have to ask, almost naively, what do these people want? What is the alternative to uh, what um, Thomas Sowell said, no government of the left has done as much for the poor as capitalism has? I, I guess I just, I was, I was reared uh, in, a, in a home and I, I did, a, did a lot of reading on my own and I began to embrace free market principles. Ronald Reagan was gaining in popularity in my youth. I, I don't see how the, the other side has much of a leg to stand on. Maybe to play the devil's advocate, maybe you can tell me what they want, because I certainly don't understand why we want to go direct to poverty and ruin like so many anti-capitalist societies have. Right. So what I would first say is that Kendi's statement is both absurd and it is immoral. And I judge it and condemn it as immoral. Uh, It's immoral because it is false. It is a lie. There is no relationship between capitalism and racism. Racism is, by definition, a collectivistic um, uh, ideology. Uh, Capitalism uh, by contrast, is the one social system that has as its purpose the protection of individual rights. So this, the statement is wrong, it is absurd, and it is immoral. Now, the question that you've asked is, what do they want? Well, what they want, uh, they, they want uh, uh, several things. First, they want to induce guilt. Um, mm. They they're, they're trying to undermine Western civilization th- via guilt, all right? The, the guilt associated with uh, things like slavery and racism that don't have anything to do with capitalism, but they want you to think it does uh, and that there is an intimate relationship in order to make you feel guilty about capitalism and a free society with the ultimate purpose of tearing down that society. What do they want? They want power. When do they want it? Now. So they want power mm-hmm. now, but ultimately the end point, the goal that, that, that they're striving toward is socialism. So all of this, you know, the, 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 um, the critical race theory that is now uh, coming to take over government schools all over the United States, critical gender theory, um, you know, all of these 
all of these individual movements actually all funnel toward one end point. And that one end point is one, the destruction of Western and or American civilization. And secondly, it's to, uh, to achieve socialism. That's the ultimate goal is to, is to create a socialist society. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the, we'll just break in. Don't lose your train of thought. Cause I, I want to go with you there, but I remember this may be an unusual analogy, but I was doing some political campaigning once, uh, as a young man. And, uh, I had, uh, uh, there were two different candidates, uh, and, and one of them was the focus of the effort that day. And we were doing what you call bumper branding. We were going through parking lots of uh, Walmart and places like that with the candidate and saying, uh, would you allow us to put a bumper sticker for our candidate on your, on your vehicle? Uh, and if they agreed to do so, then, then we did that. But, uh, because, uh, I was very supportive of another candidate for another office, I was wearing a, uh, a lapel sticker, one for the candidate I was working for doing the bumper branding and one for another candidate. And the candidate that we were working with, he said, I appreciate the fact that you're for that other candidate. I'm for him for that office as well. He's a wonderful person, but today Today, you're working for me, so I really want you to focus on me. So could you, could you lose the sticker for the other candidate for now? And I thought about messaging and how you need to focus on what your message is. Why would, why would wandering into advocating socialism, doesn't that mix your message? I mean, if you're trying to call attention to the, to the history of race in America and the ongoing struggles that we have with race in America. Why, why pull this? Aren't you losing people for your cause if you drag this socialism stuff in? Well, traditionally speaking, the answer to that question would have been yes, of course, right? Which is why there has never been in the United States, there has never been an active, thriving, successful socialist political movement because socialism is in effect is is and i mean this in the most philosophic way possible it is literally anti-american right um the american spirit of liberty could never tolerate socialism or communism and so if you go back to the early 19th century um what happened was um socialists realizing that social that the idea the ideology of socialism could never win in a what we might call a natural rights republic like the United States, they they mm -hmm. they rhetorically changed their approach and they called themselves liberals. And in fact, what they did was they stole the word liberal because liberal is actually the system. That's a great word. It's a great word, and it's classical it's, liberalism is something we identify with. That's exactly right, right? Or the founders' liberalism. The founders were liberal in the classical true sense of the world word but knowing that socialism would never work in the united states or be accepted in the united states they the left just usurped the word liberal for themselves sometimes of course they also call it progressive right so they took all the good words right who wants to be regressive when you can be progressive so they what they did was they they uh, achieved a what we might call a rhetorical coup d'etat and they mm. captured the high ground, the rhetorical high ground, but more fundamentally and more importantly, they captured the moral high ground. They captured the moral high ground 
And and they are like, you know, even Karl Marx said that capitalism is the most productive and efficient economic system ever devised by man. He, he says it in the Communist Manifesto. The problem with capitalism, according to Marx, is that it's immoral and unjust. And the problem in the United States is that we've never had a proper moral defense of, of, of capitalism. Um, certainly, uh, uh, you know, amongst uh, the people who you would think want to defend capitalism. Instead, what you get is you get pro-capitalist people simply defending capitalism on economic grounds, right? So yeah. th they say capitalism is good because, as Marx said, it is the most productive and, eff and efficient economic system. But they, it, what it they tends to build, build wealth and transfer wealth and yeah. create wealth and just purely right. non-moral. That's right. Yeah. right? But the, pro the problem, Warren, is that in any battle of ideas between morality and economics, over the long term, morality always wins, right? And the problem is that the left has captured the moral high ground over the course of the last uh, 130 plus years um, in, 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 in this country. And uh, conservatives and libertarians and classical liberals captured the economic high ground. But as I said just a second ago, in any battle of ideas between morality and economics over the long term, morality always wins out, which is precisely why this country has been going down the road to socialism for at least 75 years. And you see this most clearly um, amongst Republicans who, who have a kind of uh, allergy against trying to understand and defend a free society based on moral principles. Right. They have seeded those moral principles. So let me give you one concrete example of this. Um, well, the very concrete example would be uh, health care, for instance. Right. So who introduced a prescri prescription drug bill? Uh, in, oh, in yes. Right. Hmm. It was a Republican, namely George W. Bush. And why was that? Because the problem is that Republicans, um, through unearned guilt, uh, came to believe that, yes, there is a right to health care. And the only way in which we differ from the left is over how to deliver the right to health care. The fact of the matter is, philosophically, morally speaking, there is no right to health care. Or as a, another person I heard say it once, uh, the question is, are we going to, well, hell is what they said. Are we going to hell at 60 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour? Are we going toward collectivism really fast with, with Democrats or not quite as fast with Republicans? Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, and in the United States, I mean, the fact of the matter is we've been going 20 miles an hour uh, since the 1930s, uh, since, uh, since 1932, uh, and the election of, uh, FDR and the imposition of the new deal, we've been going just slowly creeping towards socialism. Although I will say in the last decade, uh, we, we went from 20 miles an hour on the road to socialism to a hundred miles an hour on the road to socialism. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and one of the one of the uh, one one of my favorite books. I, I was I was having dinner with a scholar here in Columbia uh, earlier this week, and we were talking about you know what is your favorite book, 
And uh, I, my number one favorite was at least, I think, in his top 10, and that was um, Paul Johnson's uh, Modern Times. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he, he was not technically an economist, but he sure, sure covered a lot of ground explaining exactly how terrible the New Deal was in these terms and how it began with Hoover. That was, that was what I took away with it that, frankly, I did not know that Hoover was, was juicing the economy by manipulating the money supply and driving up the national debt. I thought that was all FDR, but not so. No, that's right. And you know what, one of the other things, of course, that we typically forget in these conversations is that socialism and communism are responsible for the deaths, the genocide, of over a hundred million people in the 20th century, right? In, in, in a 60 year period, right? You had almost 120 million people perish under socialism and communism. Now, it seems to me that, that the blood is on the hands of, of, of those who argue for that position, right? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't matter whether you actually uh, are Joe Stalin or uh, Mao Zedong or the other great socialist Adolf Hitler, right? Of course, right? National socialist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a national socialist. Right? Or if you're a, or even if you're a Fabian socialist, which I assume is still still Britain, where where maybe where that arose, and that was sort of yes, we're going socialist but we're not going to become marxist yeah well good luck with that right <laughs> right, right? right. That, that's that's not that's not how it works yeah um and because socialism is never the end point and Orrin, it's really important um i think for uh, all of us to understand what is that what is the moral heart and soul of socialism and communism which can be summed up in a famous slogan of Karl Marx, which is from each according to his ability to each according Mm. to his need. And that moral principle is not only at the heart of communism and socialism, but it's at the heart of 20th century American uh, progressivism. Uh, That just sounds a whole lot like stealing. uh, It it seems like you've got to have theft and you've got to have force. How can socialism work work without theft and and force? Yeah, from each according to, right? That requires an intermediary, which is government, which uses coercive force to take from and to give to. I just can't help but think like this conversation started. That is immoral. That is taking. That is stealing. It is. That is not what the founders... In fact, I wanted to ask you about the year 1765. I think I, I read something that you had written uh, that that America needs to know the year 1765 as well as 1776. I hope I'm in the right uh, ballpark here. I think so. Um, so 1765 is generally considered to be the year um, it, that began what was called the imperial crisis between Great Britain and her American colonies. And it was 
uh, with the beginning of the imperial crisis in 1765 and the passage of the famous Stamp Act, that that the conflict between colonies and mother country began, which of course culminated uh, in 1776 with the Americans' Declaration of Independence. So, so 1765 um, really is, uh, in a sense, you can say the beginning uh, more broadly of the American Revolution, not the war for independence, but the American Revolution. Mm. And um, in this last book that I wrote called, uh, titled America's Revolutionary Mind, um, uh, what I what I argue is that following John Adams is in fact that the true revolution uh, did not begin in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence and then the War for Independence. The true American Revolution, which John Adams said was in the minds and hearts of the American people, began in 1765 with the passage of the Stamp Act and the Americans' reaction to it. Right. And what happened, there was literally a revolution in the minds of the American people who came to see um, and understand that they have certain rights by nature uh, and that the Stamp Act violated those those rights. And that in order to have a free society, you had to you had to establish your constitutional order based on the moral laws and rights of nature which they also interpreted as fighting for their rights as Englishmen. Well, they initially, right? So this is, this is one of the really interesting things about the American Revolution that we sometimes forget. And that is, in 1765, um, the American colonists, they were proud and loyal members of the British Empire, and they were subjects of the British king, right? And we tend to forget that. Um, and, and, and they truly were loyal subjects. They were Englishmen. They were Englishmen living abroad. And they accepted the traditional English understanding of rights. So there was this concept called the rights of Englishmen. Um, and, but the right, the problem for the Americans eventually is that the rights of Englishmen are the rights of a particular people at a particular time, at a particular place place right i wonder if that's where you're headed yes a particular time and place right and and which means right that those rights can change evolve and develop over time it also means that the government plays a role in creating those rights and and after the passage of the stamp act and then the passage of the townsend act and the t act and the coercive acts going into the 1770s the intolerable acts yeah exactly the americans came to realize that no this idea of the rights of englishmen is inadequate to properly defend our freedom and in fact they came to realize that there are that, that there are rights that are grounded not in the government of a particular people at a particular time at a particular place, but rather there are rights grounded in nature, which means that those rights are absolute, um, objective, certain, universal, and timeless. Na- nature and, and nature's God. Uh, the Declaration talks about uh, the laws of nature and of nature's God, right? And... Right. And, and that's a fundamental difference. I mean, that's a philosophic difference between the Americans and the British, 
in the 1760s and 1770s, right? And in, I would say that one of the great contributions of the American Revolution to the, to the world is this idea of grounding your constitutions and political institutions on the idea of the uh, moral laws and rights of nature. And uh, just put a little plug in for your book here, America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration that Defined It. It was released in November of 2019. And wow, 4.8 stars on, uh, on Amazon. So it's, it's uh, very popular. And you can get that from any place that you get, uh, get books. And that will enlighten you on some of these uh, issues uh, uh, further. Um, Wanted to ask you also about uh, something new or relatively new, I think, that you've rolled out at the uh, Institute, and that is exploring capitalism. I found that really, it's got its own website and everything. That, uh, that uh, looks like a great opportunity to, to explore the, the socio-political foundations of our society. Yeah. And again, uh, the new website in our program uh, in exploring capitalism is to help uh, readers understand that 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 capitalism has a moral foundation and that all of the practical public policy issues of the day right should be th that we all live with taxes regulation etc cetera, etc cetera. all of these things can and should be viewed first and foremost from a moral perspective right you can't you can't get the right policy unless you have the right moral foundation. And unfortunately, for too long, we've tried to do policy without a moral foundation. And that's what we're trying to look at with this website. Right. Right. You know, another another somewhat dangerous question I've been I've been wanting to ask you, and that is. There might be the perception among some that the Lyceum program, uh, either the. Um, either of the two programs, all of this that we've talked about today, the, the wonderful work that you do, uh, might, might be just a magnet for people or for students. I'll be specific for students, for high school graduates or Clemson students, college students, that's going to be a magnet for people that already have a set worldview and that you're just reinforcing it. But I've got to think that it, when you've stood in front of classes that you've taught to these young people and you've explained to them what capitalism really is and what it's done for the world, maybe you've seen some light bulbs pop. You've seen the, 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 the light has come on in their eyes. Am I right there? Am I safe? Um, yes and no. So what I would say is, you know, um, the Lyceum Scholars Program is first and foremost a great books program, right? So that means we read all the ancient Greek and Roman and medieval authors and, and, and early modern authors. So, you know, and, and the, the bottom line is this, every author is different one from the other. And right. so by definition, there is not and cannot be uh, a kind of ideological line that is yeah. being taken in this program. I mean, the difference is just between Plato and Aristotle. 
are meaningful, right? Never mind the differences between uh, John Locke and Karl Marx. Um, and we read Marx in our in our uh, uh, program, and you know we we probably our kids probably. Gosh, I don't know. They probably get close to a hundred diff different authors that they read over the course of their four years, and 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 by the way, I want to make this very clear to your audience. In in a couple of our classes, right? They're reading they're reading socialist literature. So yeah, yeah. Example: the original I, sources. That's exactly right. I teach the course in American political thought, and uh, I would say one third of that class is devoted to reading socialist and progressive authors. Um, and, and it is critically important to our program that we try to understand the authors as they understood themselves, that mm. is on their own terms. So when a kid comes into my class, they're, they're, they're not getting my view of the world. Uh, they're getting the view of the world um, as presented by the author that we're discussing on that particular day. Um, so the, the Lyceum program is, is utterly devoid um, of, of the kinds of considerations that you're raising. And, and the bottom, and, and the other thing is, of course, um, our primary concern in selecting students uh, is not getting kids who already agree with us. We're just trying to get the best students. So, yeah, right. So we believe um, at the heart of our application process is one word merit hmm. right yeah. uh it's it's not diversity equity or inclusion it's merit um we want to try to get the best kids that we can in our program regardless of their background um and and and, and we've been remarkably successful i have to say in in, in doing that um applications for this program have skyrocketed um, in, in recent years. And, you know, and it's, it's a program, uh, for bright, young, inquiring minds. That's what we're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being, being with us. Um, I, I wanted to try to come in for a landing here and maybe one way to do that is, um, we spoke earlier about the word liberal, and the true meaning of the word liberal, how it's sort of been stolen. Uh, I'm wondering what the, what the status is from your view of the concept of, of a liberal education, of a welcoming of, of various views, of a professor grading a student on her ability to make valid arguments based on the material um, as opposed to parroting the views of the professor. I mean, what is the situation in the academy as you see it now? Because we have, we have calls for the Chicago statement to be adopted. Uh, Clemson recently adopted that. Um, and uh, Coastal Carolina has, Winthrop has, the Citadel has. It would it would be a shame if we lost the academy and, and uh, universities in South Carolina as places that you could have a vigorous debate without being shut down. So the first thing to say is that Clemson University, the Board of Trustees, has recently accepted uh, the the Chicago Statement of Principles, which I think is a great step for the university. 
And then the, I guess the next thing I would say is that I tell my students um, all the time. In fact, I demand of my students that that uh, that their primary concern is not to under not to to know what I think. And I, I don't tell my students what I think. What I think is irrelevant. Right. We're, we're, here's how I think about it. I'm on a journey with my students. It's a journey of intellectual discovery, a journey through these great texts of Western civilization. And we are we're all headed toward the mountaintop. It's a long, it's a hard, strenuous journey to get there to read. I mean, can you imagine what it's like for for an 18 year old kid from small town, South Carolina to walk into class and be confronted having having to read Plato's Republic or Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics in their first semester freshman year? It has to be a mind blowing experience. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so, but our, our only job, my job is to guide them through the book, to help them to, 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 to get to that mountaintop, to get, to understand the text. And, and I tell my students all the time, I have no interest at all in you parroting what you think I think, like how, what could be more boring, <laughs> right. Than for me to read, um, a blue book exam where students are just parroting what they think I think. Mm -hmm. Be like reading your Vita over and over and over and over. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's of no interest to me. What's interesting, yeah. what is of interest. And the only thing that's important is how well these students understand these very difficult books. That's it. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Well, I encourage folks to go to the uh, website of the, Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. Go to exploringcapitalism.com, which is very cool. And again, America's Revolutionary Mind, the 2019 book by um, Dr. Thompson. Be sure to check that out as well. Thank you very much for being with us from the promised land, may I say, uh, and uh, for your remarks today. This podcast is one I think folks are going to need to to listen to two or three times to drink it all in, but it's been it's been great and a pleasure. Oren, thank you very much, and it's been a great pleasure for me. Thank you. Hi, this is Wendy Damron, President and CEO of Palmetto Promise Institute. Thanks for tuning in to our Beyond Policy podcast. Visit palmettopromise.org for more information and to support our mission. 